Hey everybody, thank you for joining us for today's episode of Real Estate Disruptors. Today we have Amy Ransdell with Powerhouse and Riva. Uh, she flew in from Atlanta, Georgia to talk about how she's steadily built out her real estate empire. Uh, if this is your first time tuning in, I'm Steve Trang, founder of the OfferFast Homes app, the only MLS for off-market wholesale properties. And I'm on a mission to create 100 millionaires. If you guys have been following me on social media, then you know that we've been, uh, we just finished building out our classroom. For a limited time, we're gonna be going, we're going to have give tickets to our one day all day training for anyone that buys our sales course. To see if that's something worth checking out, please go to disruptors.com slash max. And some of you guys may have noticed that we ventured off the reservation on skip tracing. So uh, we went back to old reliable batch skip tracing. If you guys are like, if you guys like our show and want to support us, please go to our white label, which is skipfast.com for your skip tracing. And as a reminder again, if you get value today, please tag a friend. Uh, comment below, share this episode, that will help us a lot, uh, help us with the algorithm so we can reach more people. And this is a live show, so please ask your questions for Amy to answer. You ready? Um, I don't have a choice, right? <laughs> We're <laughs> totally. here. Uh, ready, absolutely. <laughs> All right, so first question is just what got you into real estate? Um, so <clears throat> I'm gonna give the real raw answer here. I didn't choose to go into real estate. Real estate sort of chose me. Mm -hmm. um, I stumbled in, so like a lot of stories, um, my husband at the time was interested in, it was a hobby for him. And so it was an opportunity to help him grow the businesses that he had. And so I did, I adopted it. And uh, all these years later, he's not in real estate much as much as, or as much anymore. And I stuck with it, right? So um, that's really it. it. It wasn't something that I chose, but I loved it. So, so what were you doing before then? Oh, well, so I have a corporate background and uh, training in sales development. That was where mm -hmm. I came from. But I was always an entrepreneur. So I had left that and was trying to start my own businesses when I met him. And so um, typical e-myth failure at the time, I was trying to be every hat in the business and didn't understand leverage or outsourcing or any of those things back then. Um, so I was struggling. So when he came along with you know his hobbies and passions and I'm a little type A and I had a, saw an opportunity to kind of dive in and do my part, I went that route, so. Got it. Yeah. So when was this? This would have been it's 18 years ago, 19 years ago. <laughs> okay, yeah. so what was it like when you first got started? I mean, you said you loved it. What was it like when you, you know, when you jumped in? You know, the funny thing is, somebody was asking me that the other day. So as we look into the future of our market coming and the market this last year, and everybody's like, you know, we're gonna have this big shift in the market that's still, that's getting ready to come. I think about my career and I've, I started in a shift in the market in 01. Oh, you right? started in 01. Uh-huh. Okay. And then I started technically, right, right around that time, and then I went through the 08 crash, right? Like, I mean, I I, I just, I guess, look for trouble and, and decide to start when things are hard. Um, yeah, but what I loved about it at the time was that I had control, right? We controlled our results, and I, I really believe in being at cause, and that was a business where we could truly be at cause, right? Um, and it just seemed, all, just seemed to work for us, so. At cause? Yeah, meaning that we control the results, right? Got it. Whatever I do, I can decide what I'm going to do with it, measure my results, and get you know that's important to me. So yeah, well, I mean, I love the part where you said you're you're finding trouble because <laughs> that's really what we get paid for. We get paid absolutely to solve problems. We do. So, what was your first deal like? Oh gosh, so our very first deal we acquired by short sale in Ackworth, Georgia. It was a little 3-2 on a slab, typical little frame house um, out in Ackworth area. If those that are listening from Atlanta know where I'm talking about. Got it as a short sale, and this one we decided to actually acquire it, take title, the whole deal, not just do a back-to-back. -back. We were doing a lot of back-to-back -back closes at short sales in the time. This one we actually took title to and renovated it. It was our first actual renovation. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll never forget, we did um, everything wrong that you could imagine to do wrong, right? Um, and then we did everything right. So uh, we had bikini girls out in the street for our open house, <laughs> and we sold that girl overpriced. It was great, so. Uh, so you're talking about short sales. Yeah. You were doing them back in 2001? We were, so from 01 to 09, that was our primary uh, strategy. And our, our pre-foreclosure or people with mortgage lates, that was our almost only funnel we worked for all those years. Like we just got niche specific, um, positions ourselves as experts in that arena. Um, so that not only did we have sellers wanting to work with us over everyone else, but all of our local colleagues would throw us our de their deals too, because they didn't want to deal with them. Yeah. And this is when banks didn't have loss mitigation departments. So we'd call them up and be like, hey, I want to do a short sale. And they'd be like, huh? So we, we had power, right? We could teach the banks how to do the short sale and why they would want to you know, do that, why they would want to say yes to that. 
that. We could posture the result. Um, so it was a lot of fun until other people started getting into the same niche and it made things a little bit more wonky. And then of course we had the 08 shift, so. Yeah, so you're doing short sales from 2001 all the way up? To 2009. Even during like the crazy appreciation oh, time, you were still doing short sales? Oh, absolutely, because people still go into default, right? Mm -hmm. As you know, you just said, right, we're solutions providers. And the reality is that in any market, good or bad, there are people who have things happen in their lives that affect their ability to pay their mortgage, yeah. which puts them in that situation, right? Um, so absolutely, it is a niche that applies in any market. Okay, now obviously when the shift happened, 07, 08, 09, right, then it was Christmas. I mean, everybody needed a short sale at that time. Yeah. But but yeah, it, it's, it's still effective niche even today. Did you pick up even more market share at that point? Oh, yeah, to the point of being a little overwhelmed. Um, now at the time, we were a loss mitigation firm. So mm -hmm. we were investors, we would buy them, we would turn them, we would also process them for others and get paid, right? Yeah. Um, it got to a point where we knew the law was getting ready to change and we wouldn't be able to do that anymore. So The law where someone had to be a loan originator? Yeah, a loan originator or an attorney in different states, depending on each state and how they interpreted the law, right? And there was were a- Were you doing it multiple states? Of time. We were, oh, um, yeah, okay. Florida, Minnesota, yeah, several places, so. Yeah, uh, I'm just curious, like we got someone in our office that does them still. Yeah. And yeah, that, that whole period where they had to become a loan originator definitely adjusted everyone's business model very quickly. Absolutely, and and, and other things came with that too, right? Yeah. I mean, like just the reality of it, you couldn't, you know, dry closings and back-to-backs, things that, that were very commonplace. Yeah, needed to be B2C. Needed to be different, and and that was fine. We, we had to adjust our model too. So now what I love to be is, I just love to be, I, the Dr. Seuss story, Horton hatches the egg. If anybody mm -hmm. knows that story, it's this elephant, and he sits on an egg, and he just sits there and sits there and sits there and sits there until the egg hatches, right? Um, that's what I call myself now. I really just want to be the buyer and I'll sit on that contract because I'm patient and I understand the process so I know how to screen which ones are worth sitting on and I know how to help all the parties it's no harm no foul if I don't get the short sale approved for me what work did I have not a lot and at the end of the day everybody will win because either I'm going to be able to buy that property or the listing agent and the seller will know how to proceed further so it, it's you know that's my strategy now we no longer mm -hmm. try to negotiate them got it yeah. when did you make that transition from negotiating it to just waiting on it <laughs> uh, really honestly around 2009 2010 yeah. got it so we had some people who were working for us doing loss mitigation mm -hmm. we basically camped them in an attorney's office locally and a couple of them are still there got it so you started in short sales loss mitigation yeah and then at what what was you know because we're talking about like you know building your empire like what was the next venture after that i love that you say building an empire i look at as I'm still learning, mm -hmm. right? I'm gonna learn forever. And I've made a million mistakes along the way too. And I still make mistakes and I'm still fixing mistakes. And like, that's part of what we do, right? Um, I think that I never really looked at it myself as trying to build an empire. I've always looked at it as, okay, where is the market? Where can I provide a solution? Mm -hmm. That's what we do in business, right? We find a solution that's needed. We build around that solution. So that's really what I've done throughout the process until I've gotten to a place now where I'm very impassioned about giving back what I've learned. And so more of my inclinations and my love and passion now is more on the, the training and education side more than it ever has been. Mm -hmm. um, but you know that there's that transitional th time, right? right. Um, I will say this, right around the time that we quit doing a lot of loss mitigation is also around the time that I decided to go get my license. Um, so you're doing the whole loss mitigation the whole time and never had a license. Never had a license because uh, at that, again, this is pre the- Didn't need it. It wasn't needed, right? Yeah. Um, you were allowed to be the buyer and have another, you didn't ha even have to have the typical listing agent on the front end. You could, you know, there was commissions that could be earned. There were loss mitigation fees that could be earned. There was all kinds of things that you could do, right? Yeah. Plus you could sell it, sell beneficial interest, sell the option. There were so many other strategies that just are simply not possible now. Um, so now, or I saw that opportunity, if you will, to <coughs> have a license and monetize that end of the business. Um, I noticed over those years how many leads we would generate that mm -hmm. we didn't do anything with because they didn't fit our niche, but they fit other needs, right? So that opened the door for me to say, okay, we need to learn more about how to structure term deals. We need to learn more about how we can list property that needs to go into that bucket and and, and you know play the retail side of things. Um, and the exposure you get with having that license is, I think, a really great tool. So, so you're talking about you're dealing with uh, these short sale leads, and then you say, okay, well maybe this one is not a short sale. This could be something that we'll take over creatively or we'll list it. Absolutely. So let's talk about that because that's something I'm actually actively doing in my business. Love that. Where we're adding this component 
where we're going to say, okay, you know, this wasn't a wholesale. Do we want to do a sub two wrap, whatever seller carry list? Yeah. So what is that thought process? Mm. So I think it's a variety of things. I have, um, let's start with my, my bucket of three. I always tell people, if you're gonna look at an, a deal and analyze it, and you're thinking about first, whether that's a good hold property, let's just go there for example, right? And how you're gonna acquire it. However you're gonna structure it, will there be room to positively cash flow it, number one? Number two, will there be equity if you're in a must sell situation, right? Are there exit strategies that can be deployed besides the first one you thought of? I always tell people that's the first bucket of analysis, but then you gotta go in deeper what kind of equity is there in the property where that, that, that could be structured, for instance, as an owner finance or a sub two? Um, is there, you know, what title look like? What is the situation with the seller? You know, we obviously there's ethics involved as well. Sure. Right. Um, and so I think there's many pieces to that pie as to whether or not a deal would work better as a sub two or a wrap or maybe just a lease option and then I do a lease option wrap. I mean, there's it depends on the situation. All sorts of different tools, yeah. I say it's like a fingerprint. I think every deal is just a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And so it's on you to understand how those mechanics work to decide which one to put it in. And sometimes you don't always decide the wrong, the right bucket, but that's, that's your goal. Got it. So you get licensed and now you're looking at all these different tools to help with homeowners. How long until your next venture? Because, and you know, <laughs> I, I bring up uh, the, the uh, Empire thing. And the only reason why is because uh, Dave Day, right? Love him. He said, Steve, have you had Amy on the show? I said, I said, who's Amy? <laughs> and he says, you don't know Amy? And Atlanta's like, you know, enlighten me. And he's like, she's like you, but a lot nicer and better oh, at her job. I was Dave, like, okay. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm, he, boy, I, need, I owe him a beer. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so what were the next uh, ventures, you know, after, after doing the realtor thing? So, who? There's a lot in the middle of all that. Mm -hmm. um, about time that I got my license, um, I also became heavily involved with a very large coaching program here in the country that a lot of people are familiar with. Um, and we had several national blogs that we were running and so forth, and all of that sort of coincided for me to do a lot with them that ran along with building some trainings for realtors on our team and our acquisitions team. So I had several years where I'm just doing you know, traditional teams and our acquisition, acquisition teams and allowing them to work collaboratively together, which is something I do even more so now than I did then. Yeah. Um, and I had this belief, I still do, that as investors, how we look at the market, how we market for deals, right, is so much better than agents are ever taught. And, and we know how to, to laser in and niche ourselves to get the actually motivated sellers mm -hmm. in any price points in any area that agents, again, are never taught. And so to me, there's a perfect marriage between the two that if you're doing investor-oriented branding and marketing and lead gen, that that's gonna drive in a massive lead pool to support that traditional side of the business. And those of you that are listening that are licensed understand that listings generate buyer leads mm -hmm. and so et cetera, it just starts to create other pockets of income within the same brand. Right. right, additional sources of revenue without any additional expenses. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Or, or another way to look at it is that my investment that I'm spending, mm -hmm. so that investment going out to generate the leads, what it converts into as business, the cost per acquisition per, per transaction goes down. Right. Right. Um, so it just, to me, it, you're looking at a balance sheet, that just makes so much more sense, right? Yeah, and it's something that I've harped on, you know, every now and then, but no one really cares, you know. <laughs> just, uh, there's this, this the, the realtor community and the wholesaler community are very separated, and it makes no sense to me. None. Because we're trying to do the same thing. We're trying to find the sellers that want to sell, Yeah. but there's this animosity. I don't know how to get around it. There is this weird animosity, and for a long time it was oil and water, right? Like mm -hmm. investors shouldn't have their license. And I'd always ask them, like, well, why shouldn't you have your license? Well, if I have my license, I can't do A, B, and C. And my answer always was, well, if you if there's things you think you can't do with a license, you probably shouldn't be doing them, Right. number one, right? Um, and then just, again, there's this perfect marriage. We should be working together. I, I was at a mastermind a couple of years ago, and I was always, there's always not very many girls. <laughs> I was one of the few women at the table and I got pushed off to the very end to present, like, oh, she's just an agent and a girl, you know, woman, what's she gonna say? I really, that's how I felt the whole time. Maybe I was projecting, I don't know, but. 
Um, but my presentation was I took a lot of the numbers, the acquisition numbers that all the guys had shared and their mm -hmm. conversions, and I layered on top of that how many they could convert into the retail side and or utilize the retail market to sell their wholesale deals mm -hmm. and just ran some like you know revenue numbers for them to show them some of them, literally hundreds of thousands of dollars in revenue, they were not generating. They're just throwing away. Throwing it away. They're spending all this money on leads, mm -hmm. just throwing money away. And I really had some jaw-dropping moments from people at that table. Yeah. I'm like, you all need to all add a license to your teams, every one of you. So Is that when you decided to open the brokerage? No, no. Um, I've been a brokerage model in different forms since I got my license. It was probably... I was less than a year in of having my license that the entrepreneur in me didn't mm -hmm. want to stay in a brokerage. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I hired a qualifying broker and started one, right? I will say that there was different morphed versions of that over the years. Um, it wasn't a- Morphed how? Um, I was an independent brokerage with my own qualifying broker. I hired but owned it. Um, and then I teamed up with another brokerage so that we were two brokers. They ran their division, I ran mine. I was there for a while. Um, and then we went back to being an ind completely independent. Mm -hmm. um, and I currently hold the qualifying broker hat, although planning to um, take that back off of my plate and having someone else serve as qualifying broker and managing broker. Does qualifying broker mean like the one that gets in trouble when things go south? Yes, okay. which is what none of us want, right? Let's, let's, I reject that. Let's yeah. not allow that to come into my, my to my energy right now. Yeah. Um, but yes, um, it is the person that's ultimately responsible, and there is a lot that comes with that. So, mm -hmm. people who are listening, right? Like, if you're trying to make that decision as to whether or not you want to be a brokerage, for some of you, that's not the right fit. You don't need to carry that liability and expense of being an independent brokerage. You can simply park your license inside a brokerage and do what you do. But make sure you're finding an investor support of brokerage. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's something that people kind of miss. They can't find their investor-friendly broker. I think, I'm convinced they're out there everywhere, but you gotta go and find them. Yeah. Um, and I asked that question earlier just because I'm the designated broker and I can't, right. I don't believe I can find a broker as willing to take on the kind of liability and risk that I'm totally comfortable <laughs> with. Well, see, I'm comfortable with it too. Like, we've just done so many transactions that yeah. like, nothing really scares me. And I tend to be a, I never say no, I just say no, it can't be that way, let's figure out how, right? Problem and solver. Problem solver, it's hard to find people who are who are resourceful and solution oriented, right? Yeah. And so, I, I get it, I, I feel you. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I'll have the same challenge as I start to openly look. Yeah, so you, you, you believe that, you know, taking that model where you're looking for distressed sellers, monetizing it on the back end through traditional means, if it doesn't go in the first bucket, when is wholesaling and flipping and buying and holding, like how does it all fit into this business? Yeah, so the reality is during all this time, I'm still an investor. Um, and again, to everybody listening, everyone should be an investor. Like you, you have things you do that maybe generate income or build something that you're building that you're passionate about, but truly you should also still be investing, right? And I'm not gonna say that everything's always gone the right way over the years, yeah. <laughs> um, just hasn't, but, um, and I'm still learning, right? But I have actively done the things that I help others do, right? Mm -hmm. So as an active coach and consultant and broker who's working with people in volume, who do volume, I myself have done a lot of transactions. So um, I encourage everybody that even if you're gonna go the route of what I'm doing right now, you're still investing, right? So I currently have an acquisitions team. Um, they have a pretty lofty goal I set them for the year. Um, and what is it? My goal, <laughs> I hate to say this out loud of the universe. Of course, they would all be like, yeah, let's do it. Um, our goal was to, uh, to turn 100 houses in mm -hmm. the next calendar year. Not all is obviously renovation flips. Um, a lot of that would be going through some sort of a wholesale route or hold route um, or turnkey route. Um, but that, that was the goal I gave them. So mm -hmm. they'd have something to measure backwards from on what their da daily metrics need to be. Got it. Um, so on that note, you mentioned uh, about the importance of lead systems, knowing your numbers. <sighs> and the value of why that's important. You wanna elaborate on that? Do you love your numbers? Do I love my numbers? No, but I look at them. <laughs> that's the best answer. Okay, oh, I so love that answer because sometimes I don't either. Yeah. Um, I looked at a report for the cold calling team as I was on the, in the car on the way here and I'm like, I don't know if I love those numbers, but you, know, um, you have to though, right? Yeah. And. I don't know how many people do this, but if you're listening, anybody that's listening, like you've got to go all the way back from what is your net goal for the year? And what does that translate into what you need to be earning really per day? 
Mm-hmm. Right, you know, per project, per day, per average per listing. I mean, all of that affects every decision you make all the way down to how many records you're going to invest in and what methods you're going to do to get hold of sellers and how much you're going to invest to do that, right? Um, so you don't know, was it one of my favorite Tony Robbins quotes, is that you can't know what to do for the day if you don't know what you're doing for your life, okay? Mm-hmm. So that applies in this in this arena as well on a, on a micro level that how do I know what to how many people do I'm supposed to call that day, talk to that day, follow up with? How many contracts do I need to write per week to get the number of deals that I said I wanted to close? Like, if you don't know what that is, then you'll waste a whole day. Right. All right. So, the prototypical, you know, you're talking to someone that's listening to the podcast, hasn't done a deal yet. Yeah. And a lot of people I talk to, you know, their goal, and I don't know what it is about real estate, but everyone's goal is 100000 in the first year. <laughs> yeah. So what would that conversation, let's just say someone in your market, okay? They say, Amy, I wanna do 100,000 my first year. Mm. So we're talking about the numbers we were just discussing here. What would you tell that person as far as what they need to track? Wow. and now, this is, it's a complicated question. First of all, mm-hmm. I want to speak to the 100,000. I think working with coaching clients, uh, Bob and I were talking the other day, Bob Lachance at Riva Global, um, that we were just kind of reminiscing about how many coaching students we've worked with over the years. And it's huge. It's like you know, well over 1,000 students, right? Yeah. So it's very common to hear that statement. And a lot of times I think the six-figure thing of 100,000 is something that people fixate on because they've always been sub-six figures, mm-hmm. right? So it's that first round number that they go after. They don't really have a attainable or sensible reason for choosing it. And sometimes that's the first issue, is really getting in de- kind of down into the, the dirt with them as to what they really want, which might not be the 100,000. So I just want to put a little balloon on that and kind of hold that out here for a minute. Yeah. Um, also, we have to sit and look at, do a discovery session with them on how many, what's their resources, right? What is their experience? Um, do they have more time than money or more money than time? You know, those are all going to come into play to help them strategize a plan. Yeah. And then from there, it's your local market. What is the average net per deal that you should maybe expect in your local market? Um, if you're in the San Francisco market, you could turn one deal and make six figures, right? Mm-hmm. But if you're in my market, your average wholesale net pre this crazy little market we're in right now, it would be anywhere from like, you know, net net 7,500 to 15 grand, maybe, right? So now you know, if you're in my market, well, I gotta do maybe 10 to 15 deals to get my net, right? And so now that means I gotta close a deal per month. So if I'm gonna close a deal per month, we work backwards from there to kind of figure out, well, how many people do I have to talk to to get enough appointments to turn enough into a contract? And in the beginning, your stats aren't gonna be great. No, it's gonna be awful in the beginning. Yeah, your conversions are gonna be horrible. So it it is that, but there's a lot of variables there. Sure. Um, And so what are you finding? Because this is what Mm. we've seen is a lot of people have you know grandiose goals and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm talking, I'm not even talking about the new guy right now. I'm just talking about the guy that's been doing it for a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. and, and they're very revenue heavy, mm-hmm. not necessarily profit heavy. Ooh, yeah, good one. So what are you seeing out there like as far as you know, just approximate numbers, people that come in for coaching, like you know, from, from the outside, it looks like they have a great business. Ooh. But they don't really know their KPIs like they probably should, and there's some things kind of falling through the cracks. They do, and you know, even I sometimes will fall there, right? But I'm, um, I have a commitment to measuring, right, where mm-hmm. that is. Um, I think that's also just a growth, that's a growth thing as well. Yeah. I think as you transition in life and you grow as an entrep- into, into the role of really what an entrepreneur is, which in my world, a definition of an entrepreneur is someone who is making money truly passively from assets that not necessarily any earned income necessary to have cash flow positive over their expenses. And they could go away for a year, travel to Indonesia or wherever and be gone for an entire year, come back, their business is still profitable and maybe has even grown. That's an entrepreneur. And most of us are not fully there yet. I'm not, I know that, right? (laughs) Um, As my team is all texting me all morning. Like I'm like, I'm not being an entrepreneur right now, okay? So, so, so knowing that, yeah, a lot of people have lofty goals and a lot of people don't understand that there's a difference between revenues, re- revenue or income coming in and profit, 
right? Mm -hmm. And so you think you have revenue because you cash a big check from a wholesale deal, but you're not looking at how much, how what your expenses and liabilities were, right? What is your liability management, right? Like I have a couple things I'm doing right now. My liability management is really high, and that bothers me. So that's there's a, a an effect on decisions to help us lessen that, raise what we're earning from assets, so that that becomes better, right? Um, I think a lot of people just they're looking at the business as a hobby and a thing versus a business mm -hmm. owner, and that's just a transitional growth. What thing. is liability management? In my opinion, or in my de my definition, um, you know, if you have a lot of liabilities that are not generating profits for you, mm -hmm. they're just purely liabilities. Then that needs to be lessened, right? That's just in my world. That's it. Simple. So expenses. Expenses that aren't generating something for you, right? I mean, like for instance, I believe debt's a good thing. So I hold your ears, all my Dave Ramsey people. Right? I love Dave. He's awesome. But um, and I think that there's some things we shouldn't have as debt. Right, like you, like a primary residence mortgage is is, a, is not necessarily good debt, right? Mm. But debt on a rental property that you're leveraging for cash flow is good debt, right? Mm. So um, there is, you know, range of what a liability can be. Is it good or bad debt? Yeah. Right. So I and I just want to harp on this or emphasize this one more time because we're talking about the importance of, of knowing your numbers. I think it's really hard at times to know your numbers, but if you can develop the habit early, it's going to help you set set you up later on. Yeah. Yeah, but you know what? It's hard. It is hard, and it's not fun. No, no, it's not sexy. It's not fun. And for those of us, like I was a biochem major who got an art degree and worked in sales and marketing, <laughs> right? Like I'm that creative kinesthetic type, like, you know, woo, I like color, right? Mm -hmm. You know? So looking at numbers like that, it's not sexy. It's not something that I want to do, but that's what discipline is, right? What's the definition of discipline is doing something that we don't like to do, but doing it anyway, mm -hmm. okay? And that's part of what your numbers are. And so make that something that becomes sexy for you. And here's the reality. And I have had to learn this the hard way and I'm still learning it, truly. And I'm just, I'm a very transparent person, um, is that you learn how money is a good thing. And making money makes things easier, oh, right? Yeah. Yes. So sometimes when we're starting out, particularly if we're at the very beginning of our jump into being solopreneurs or investors and uh, entrepreneurs, is that we don't have a good relationship with money, um, right? Yeah. And I've been there, and so you. I've kinda, been there for a very long time. Yes. Yes. Um, so we have to learn and grow, and as you learn the value of what money creates for your life the time freedom it actually gives you, the freedom of choice that it gives you, then you start to value the decisions that come to protect that happening. Mm -hmm. And then numbers become sexy, right? Yeah. Reports become sexy, right? So I actually look forward to it now. <laughs> it's not fun, but I do look forward to it. Yeah. Um, one thing you were talking about um, uh, earlier, uh, before, our, our, uh, before you came in here, is you talked about NLP. Yeah. And NLP is something I've studied. I wouldn't say I'm an expert by any means. I feel very comfortable with my sales skills, sales training. But NLP, I have to ask you, since you you, you, you said you're good at it, <laughs> where the hell do you read about it? Because oh. everything I've read has just been a transcription of Richard Bandler and John Grinder or oh. whatever. <laughs> like there's okay. no like book to read, right? Okay, great. Um, actually, I can give you, I will, actually, ask me later, I'm gonna give you a couple books that you actually would probably appreciate because okay. you love sales and negotiation type mm -hmm. stuff yeah. um, that would be some scripting things using NLP techniques that you will just get all excited about. Actually, but, before you say that, let me clarify for everyone. Okay. <laughs> That's neuro-linguistics programming. Thank you, there we go, okay, yes. Yeah. So, um, and you guys can all go Google that and get on YouTube and find a million videos of people trying to teach different techniques within the world of NLP. Mm -hmm. And NLP goes way beyond language. It's something much, much bigger than even that. Um, but yeah, there is some great content out there. And I'm very blessed to have um, been a passion of something that I've studied for most of my career. Um, I studied for sales reasons way back in the day. And That's the reason why I'm studying. Okay, but then I studied. Then I started to realize the other benefits of it way beyond yeah. that. Um, it's great for mediation, negotiations, consultation services. It's, it's across the board, and it's great for your own personal development, right? Um, so I now do breakthrough coaching sessions with people who need to have a mindset and value shift mm -hmm. in order to do well in their business. And there are techniques within the world of NLP that can take somebody in 24 hours and help have help them break through years of being stuck. Right. I've seen that. Mm -hmm. It was very therapeutic, and it, it really changed, like removed the breaks in their in, in, in 
inside between the yes. ears. I've seen that. Yes, oh, it's so powerful. And as somebody that does breakthroughs with people, mm-hmm. I will tell you as that person, as the practitioner, um, it is probably our most exciting moment because you literally watch their sensory acuity change. I mean, they, they walk out taller and with you know color in their cheeks and they're happier and the weight of the world is lifted when they actually realize how to move past things that are stuck energy back in their past that mm-hmm. is holding them back from understanding or being at a complexity of thought to be able to have the solutions at the level they're trying to go to next so the reality is all of us can only do we only can work with the resources we have at the time that we have them. And if we've never experienced having to do something at a certain level of complexity, we're not gonna be able to do it. Yeah. And sometimes there are just simply things holding us back from believing that we can, it can be a limiting belief, mm-hmm. it can be negative emotions and so forth. So I could go really deep, but um, you were asking about where to find information. What books? Because I yeah. read, like I, I picked up a few of the, you know, the Bandler Grinder books, yeah. and they're just not written well. So I'll and give so you. I, I, I recently read Words That Changed Minds, which I thought was phenomenal. Okay. Yeah. okay. Uh, and then there's another one I can't remember. Uh, something about uh, mouth, twisted mouth, what was it? Oh, slate of, slate of Mouth? Slate of Mouth. Yeah, Slate of that Mouth. That was good. Is, slate of Mouth is really amazing. Yeah, Slate of Mouth was really good. Mm-hmm. But that's it. That's all I could find. So there's actually a good book on. Um, it was called Art of Persuasion by Rintu Basu. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually suggest that one. Um, it's a pretty simple read, and you want to do it don't want to read it cover to cover. What you want to do is read each section, apply it a lot, mm-hmm. like for like a month, right? And so it becomes habit. And then that skill will be installed and then you can learn the next set of skills, right? Yeah. Um, but I also suggest if anybody's listening and you have a real passion for learning about what we're talking about, if any of this has sparked anything in you, um, I'm very blessed that two good friends of mine started a program called Recalibrate 360 um, a couple of years back. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the most comprehensive and powerful programs for adopting NLP into your business is their program. And so you can go through their program and become certified in it if that's what, you're, what you'd like to do or just simply learn it from them, right? Yeah. And, and then in the process of becoming a master practitioner with their program, you can even experience a personal breakthrough. Um, and then they have programs above that that are for entrepreneurs that are just amazing, right? Um, and I probably have learned more about adopting NLP into what I do just by simply my interactions with them because that's 100% what they do, right? Yeah. Um, but it's a game changer for sure. So for those of us that heard us rambling about this for like the last <laughs> five minutes, can you give me an example of what how NLP would apply in our business? Ooh, yes. Okay, so all of us, um, we're all talking to sellers, customers, clients, right? I don't know if you're an agent or investor, either mm-hmm. way, you are having to talk with people. And in in that process, sometimes we don't know how to either, there's several things, A, build rapport with them at a higher level. And in order to build rapport, you need to learn some skills about watching them and how they speak and act and talk that you can use to get into instant higher level rapport. When you're in rapport, then you can help get to agreement, right? Mm -hmm. You can't ever get an agreement. You will be in full resistance if you don't build rapport. NLP will give you master key skills to do that. Another thing would be learning people's decision strategies. NLP teaches you ways to watch how people, how to ask questions and how to watch people's responses to determine what their decision strategies are. And if you know what those strategies are, then you can present your solution to them in a way that matches their strategy. Mm -hmm. And so again, you stay in rapport and agreement, right? Right. Um, So just those two things. If you could imagine sitting in front of sellers and doubling your conversion rate with them mm-hmm. just by in those skills alone yeah. then it's worth doing it yeah there's certain things you know when you're meeting with somebody where you just don't like them you don't know why <laughs> right it, it's that it, it's, it's cognitive dissonance is what it is oh. right and NLP basically removes that hurdle yeah it doesn't make you superhuman it just reduces the things that you're gonna screw up to destroy rapport. It does. You some one of the presuppositions of NLP is to um, understand that everybody has a different model of the world mm-hmm. and to accept that. You start you learn to really see people differently. I'm gonna so now when I look at someone who annoys me, I just immediately decide what value level they're at, how they see the world, how they respond to things. I'm just measuring them now, right? Now I will say this though to everybody listening, if somebody really annoys you, it's likely there's something in you that you see in them that you don't like about you or mm-hmm. that you need to learn that you haven't learned yet and so you're probably projecting just a little bit so also take a little moment to have a learning right yeah. um but yeah, yeah NLP I mean, is that, that kind of goes back to like if everyone you know is a jerk 
Maybe it might, it might be you. <laughs> You're the common denominator. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> uh, okay, so another thing you were talking about because you mentioned Reva Global earlier. Yes. Uh, you mentioned Bob Lachance. Yeah. Uh, so transforming, transformation from creating a job uh, for yourself to entrepreneurship through outsourcing. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that? Absolutely. Um, so Reva Global that we've mentioned a couple times. So Reva Global is a virtual assistant company. Right, um, Bob Lachance is the CEO and founder, and it was founded on the principle of, again, providing a solution. So we saw an active need by lots of coaching clients and small business owners within our niche that were struggling. They would, a uh, law of the lid, they could only do so much in a day themselves. It's my favorite law. I, yes, John yeah. Maxwell, yes, I say it all the time. Um, so I, I hit that lid recently with something. Mm -hmm. um, but. Um, we would see that, right? And so they would want to do more, but they couldn't get past the, the hours in the day. And or we would watch them do what I call MWAs, minimum wage activities, and, but they would expect the $100,000 paycheck for the mm -hmm. year, but they would be doing MWAs all day. And so again, creating their own cap, right? And so we were like, well, how do we solve that? And the one way to solve that is to provide them dedicated, consistent people doing those MWA activities for them mm -hmm. so that they have more time to do the highest revenue generating activities and most important decision making activities for their business or what their strengths are, not their weaknesses. And that's where, where Reva Global was born, was with that mission, right? Um, and so we treat our VAs the same way. We want to provide them freedom and growth as well. So mm -hmm. it's kind of a, it's a beautiful win on both sides. Um, and a lot of our clients, that's what they're coming to us for is, you know, I want to go from 10 closings a year to 100 closings a year. Well, how are you going to do that? You're going to have to get lean. You're going to have to control your expenses, but still do a lot more production. That's going to require dedicated, trained help to do that. Absolutely. Uh, <clears throat> you want to elaborate for people that were just listening what the law of the lid is. <laughs> so the law of the lid, now John Maxwell, who wrote the 20, was it 25, 20 refutable laws of leadership? It was 21. 21, sorry, okay. Yeah. Um, one of his laws is law of the lid. And in his book, he's talking about leadership. So he's saying, you know, that the highest the leader goes, and this, is, this applies to mindset, skill, experience, commitment, discipline, habits, right? At the highest the leader goes is as high as anybody they lead can go, mm -hmm. right? So the leader caps that. Um, but that law of the lid can apply in lots of ways. And if you just can imagine, you know, that if you're a solopreneur, right, then what you can accomplish in a day is your lid, mm -hmm. right? Unless yeah. you find a way to do more mm -hmm. without it doing it yourself, so. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think for me, the law of the lid, it maybe is a positive thing, right? You gotta push yourself whatever, the way I always look at it is that I operate from that state of paranoia, is that oh. I always have to get better. Yeah, I need to get better every day. Yeah, Because if I'm not, then the people around me are gonna leave. Like why would they stay with someone that can't help them get better? Ooh, or or has I love what you said. You have you personally have a commitment to growth and getting mm -hmm. better, right? That's yeah. a beautiful thing. That makes you an amazing leader because you're vulnerable and humble enough to say, you know, I don't know everything. I yeah. don't know everything, and I make mistakes and learn all the time. I learned a really weird fact on the way here today from the Uber <laughs> driver, but um, I have a commitment to growth and learning, and that to me is the most powerful leader because you're willing to say, I'm going to. They they're going to watch you have that habit and that mm -hmm. commitment, right? Um, I love that, yeah. <laughs> um, one thing that we were also talking about earlier is the work-life balance. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you wanna share what your experience is, because you know, you're talking about, um, again, you know, we're trying to do similar things. You know, we get all our hands in multiple piles. Yes. Or trying to, uh, there's all sorts of revenue opportunities in our industry. There's no shortage of opportunities. No. And so we're, you know, we're getting, again, we have our hand in many jars. Yeah. And, but we also have families. Mm, yeah. So you want to talk about work life balance. Which, by the way, I love your posts when you share with your, with oh. your kids. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> um, I don't, um, wow. So, first, uh, balance to me is a myth, mm -hmm. right? Um, I don't believe anybody has truly balanced, but I do believe in having a commitment to what living in ecology, right? That I don't want to live in such a, or make choices in such a way that aren't good for my family. They have to be good for me and good for my family. If they're not good for both and good for my team and my society and the world, if they're not good for all of that, then I probably shouldn't or can't do it now, mm -hmm. right? Um, 
it, balance does require discipline and being cognizantly aware of are you there, right? Um, and that's I'm not, I'm not going to be I'm going to be real and say it, that's very difficult. Um, in my world, I am a single parent as well, so it's I'm, I am literally the only voice they have mm -hmm. <laughs> um, for anything they need, my children. And so you also have to have a hierarchy of priorities and establish a world around you that respects those priorities, right? Yeah. So my team and my all my agents, they all know where my hierarchy of priority is, and it's my children first, mm -hmm. right? I love them, I love you, but you know, I, I'm a mom first, so. Yeah. I tell my kids we all have a love-hate relationship. <laughs> I love them from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. They're beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> they uh, couldn't ask for more. Oh. From 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. It's like, really? Get it together. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sucking up, buttercup. <laughs> Not available. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, That's funny. <laughs> so going back to our, uh, the comment I made earlier about your hand in the cookie jar, because this is something I'm struggling with myself personally at the moment, is how do you say no? When do you say no? Like, because you kind of touch touch on it a little bit. You know, you got your hierarchy of priorities, but saying no is something that's. Ooh, so one of my favorite things, and I have a shirt that says it. Someone made me. Mm -hmm. Saying no is saying yes to me, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to have. There's you know shiny pennies and squirrels everywhere, right? There's fires to be putting out everywhere, and you're right. Opportunities do come along, challenges come along, regrets come along. Things happen, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think you have to have a very clear filter for what you want. And I don't mean materialistic type stuff, although that might be part of it, but even if you're wanting to go buy things, there's probably something underneath that that's really what you want. Mm -hmm. It's probably some sort of way that you want to feel about you or feel about your life. Um, and I think doing a lot of work on what that is so you can set your intention on that becomes your automatic no filter, right? Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't have any qualms or feel bad about saying no to people or things or opportunities because I am able to decide if it's going to move me closer to what I want. Yeah, I don't really have a hard time saying no to a lot of things, but there are so many good things that I keep know. coming up. There it's, is. <laughs> like, uh, I'm here today. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, like, this was, but this, this fit within something that I love, which is mm -hmm. a passion of helping others rise. And so this fit, so, so to describe, like you said, this stayed in my filter, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, so, uh, Fogtown King wants to know, in your opinion, where do you see the real estate market looking like next year in Atlanta? Ooh. Okay, so Atlanta specifically, for those listening, um, I'm really ha proud of our city. <laughs> what it was back in the 08 crash is very different. We weren't well insulated then. This time around, we have a lot of good things going for us. We have a great park system, the Beltline system. We have a lot of um, industry that has moved to Atlanta in the last few years and committed long-term, whether it's the movie industry or other Inc. 500 and uh, and oh, yeah, you got the Georgia companies. peach everywhere. We have peach trees everywhere. Oh my gosh, yes. I'm talking about like it's always that Georgia peach in those yes. movies. Oh, the it's credits. everywhere. Yeah. Isn't that great? Um, so we love that, right? Yeah. Um, and we get my take my children down to watch the zombies walk by with Walking Dead, it's great. <laughs> But um, I don't, um, that's insulated us. We have, you know, Amazon's put a ton of distribution facilities around the Atlanta area. I mean, there's just so many commitments by uh, Inc. 500, even Inc. 100 and up companies who have put headquarters there, um, major, major installations and entitlements that they've invested in there. So that's helped bring a lot of stability to Atlanta. And you add that to the fact that Atlanta back in the 08 crash, where the real estate market, the bubble, the worst part of this country was in Atlanta. Was it? Yeah, so the headquarters of the FBI for dealing with mortgage fraud and appraisal fraud for the country was in Atlanta, right? And it's because of the, uh, it was just so rampant there, right? So when you added, you know, borrowers who were borrowing on crazy, crazy, you know, non, no credit, no doc type stuff. Ninja lots loans. Of, ninja loans, oh, I like mm -hmm. that. Um, and lots of appraisal fraud. We had huge pockets of Atlanta that you know, just crashed, right? We don't have that this time around. This time around, we have borrowers that are gonna go into, into default this year, but they were good credit borrowers, mm -hmm. right? Um, so it's a different it's a different game, and there's no equity, there's no non-existent equity thing like we had then. Yeah, yeah. so for those of you guys that uh, weren't around during that time, 
Uh, ninja loans is actually a technical term, and that was stood for no income, no, no job, job or assets. <laughs> and listen, I I can attest to having short sales walk into my office, and it would be somebody who had a questionable job, and somehow bought five houses. I'm yeah. like, you know, it was crazy, but you know, that's what it is. That's what happened back then. Yeah. Um, so Paul Babasato has a question, which I think <clears throat> your rival. We have a global side may answer. Okay. What do you suggest? Getting steady deals before outsourcing or outsourcing from the start? Ooh. Okay, so that also, honestly, if I was your coach, that comes back to sort of uh, what your goals are, what your current resources are, right? Mm -hmm. And if you came to me and you had no money in savings at all and you have this lofty goal but you have no money to spend, you're gonna have to go out and hustle the streets before I let you outsource, right? Mm -hmm. If you're somebody that's already, that, that's well padded, you have six months of reserves and you're really committed and you've got money budgeted to invest in your marketing and invest into your lead generation, then I'm gonna have you probably start outsourcing from the front. Okay. Yeah. So it's 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 different for who depending on who you are and what which what your situation looks like. It's a very responsible answer. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not what I did. No. <laughs> so I just put everything on a credit card. You know, I, I actually okay, honestly, <laughs> seriously guys, but you know what? You had um not that you had reserves in place, right? But you had resources available to you and you made mm -hmm. it a Calculated risk, educated decision. Yeah, sort of. No, not really. Okay, well. I, I'm just, I just have a super high risk tolerance. <laughs> uh, before real estate, I was a failed poker player. So, oh you know, my gosh, I was I an love engineer, that. but you know, I tried going pro in poker. I didn't work. But <laughs> risk reward is something that we got to calculate all the time. We do, but you know what? As we grow, just being honest, hey guys, if you're, if you see yourself one day being an entrepreneur. Let me tell you what, you're gonna go through a little phase of your life where you're gonna be a cliff jumper too, right? Mm -hmm. Like my friends describe me that way, like you just jump off cliffs, you don't have the feathers or the glue or anything to make the wings, but you somehow find them on the way down. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, well, but I'm committed that I know where I'm gonna go if I jump off the cliff, mm -hmm. so I'm committed, or I am I know I'll find the resources, right? right. Um, so I, I'm a little bit of a risk taker too. Yeah, you know, it was interesting, I was in a, a mastermind this past weekend, <clears throat> and someone made the comment, it's like, you just gotta jump off the cliff and build a plan on the way down. And someone's like, well, what if you can't figure it out? And uh, uh, my friend Amy is like, well, if you crash, just get up, <laughs> brush that fire off and go do it again. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. Um, not to be as graphic, and I'm like literally seeing blood and like you're putting your butt bones back together but um, yeah. in my head. But um, I, I tell my team this all the time. I'm like, listen, a big heavy boulder, that's your goal, right? It's big heavy boulder, like it's inert. Mm -hmm. If you don't push it, you got nothing, honey. You got to push it somewhere. Like you want to start rolling down the hill, you got you got to give it some umph. And mm -hmm. it's if you just never jump off the diving board, if you never jump off the cliff, whatever helps you visualize that. If you don't do it, you're never going to go anywhere. It's like the guy who wants to lose weight but never leaves the leaves the couch, right? It's yeah. it's that type of thing. Yeah, it's uh, the Zig Ziglar. You got you don't have to be uh, great to start. But you have to start to be great. Yes, love that. Um. So uh, Marcos wants to know, what are you doing right now to generate leads? Ooh, very good question. Several things, okay? Um, currently, my, myself personally. So at Riva Global, um, we have a cold calling team called mm -hmm. Deal Dialers um, that we built as a line of business about a year and a half, two years ago now. Um, so I actively have that team making outbound cold calls for me in volume. Um, we have another team at Riva Global that is in partnership with Launch Control. Some mm -hmm. of you are familiar with that platform, which is a text message platform, SMS platform. Um, and I use virtual assistants to do that texting for me using our scripting, right? Mm -hmm. We actually have them weekly doing sales and negotiation training because I'm yeah. very passionate about that with all everything we've described earlier with mm -hmm. NLP and everything. And we're actually honing their skills. And so they do all of the text message conversations and the follow-up negotiations until an appointment is set for our acquisition team. Yeah. And then we're also simultaneously doing direct mail. I will say this to everybody listening in my personal opinion, you know, when cold calling and text messaging and so forth, I'm 18 years in, right? Different types of things become the thing of the moment. And so there becomes more and more volume of that happening, right? So you mm -hmm. always want to be paying attention to that. So where we're getting kick, kicker or killer results with both cold calling and the text message systems, I also believe that as the year goes along, we're going to have to get back to being on the street and knocking doors. And it's going to have to become come back to our systems, which is not necessarily something you can automate or outsource mm -mm. so easily. No, right? you gotta scale it. You have to scale slowly. it. But I see us a trend of, of us standing apart from the virtual guys as being a real face that can really shake their hand and really sit at their kitchen table. So I just wanna 
kind of bring that up that I believe that's something people should start considering making a piece of their of their structure. Yeah, makes total sense. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Saunders wants to know, if you have a realtor in your wholesale team, how do you share his listing revenue if you are not licensed? Uh, okay, well, a commission cannot be paid to an unlicensed individual, mm -hmm. period. Now, that being said, if you're a wholesaler and you're generating leads and you're not licensed, you can become a lead provider and you can sell leads. And if it's mm -hmm. set up as a company with a structured lead purchase type scenario, that's possible, mm -hmm. right? Um, realtors listening, we all know we can go buy leads. It's the same thing, right? So that's one route. You just can't share revenue. It can't be a profit share or a, a or a um, percentage of commission yeah. from license to non-license. Cannot be correlated in any way whatsoever. Right. It's gotta be a flat fee per lead. Flat fee per lead, and it can't, right, and there's no ebb and flow to that. Yeah. It's a it's a true lead purchase flat scenario, not at all connected to profit. Yeah, Absolutely. it's per lead, not per deal. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. which means that you might sell 10 leads, it turns into one listing for that agent or whatever, mm. but it's, it's whatever, just don't, don't try and don't try to do it under the table. I, I I see people doing that stuff all the time, and it's not it's not good. I make, someone's gonna get in trouble. Someone's gonna get in trouble. It's one of the things with my um, agents who are li my licensed investors. My licensed investors will do a lot of what we call personal transactions, and the Real Estate Commission requires that we have notice to broker and so forth. So we have a whole process, an online form, and everything they have to do with me, so that I know what they're doing. They have to turn in the settlement statements to me, mm -hmm. and the contracts, because one of the things I'm looking for is did somebody get paid that shouldn't have, mm -hmm. and how did that happen? And if it does, then there's immediate disciplinary action, right? So, um, just because you're on the hook for it. <laughs> well, or yes, multiple people are on the hook for it. Exactly, and I want yeah. to see them sustain their businesses, not cause them trouble. Yep. Um, Samuel Velasquez wants to know how much. How do you determine how much you should net on a wholesale deal, uh, in in their respective market? Oh, that's such a hard question. So, I'm okay. Don't be greedy. What was it? What's the phrase? You know, pigs, uh, pigs get fed, hogs get slaughtered. Yeah, there you go. Um, I should have said that with southern accent. I, Try not to talk too southern when I'm doing a podcast. <laughs> I would. Um, so yeah, don't be overly greedy. Here's the re here's something I just want to say. You have a responsibility to the seller you're going into contract with to perform at what you said you're going to do. Mm -hmm. If you don't perform and you back out of a contract just because you don't have a buyer, not for any other material reason, then you're a straw buyer. And you shouldn't be doing that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you need to not be putting properties under contract and then trying to sell them at such large spreads that you eliminate you performing, number one, right? Um, I think number two, you also have a responsibility not to necessarily um, equity strip from a seller. And, you know, I mean, not to say that sellers, if, you, if, they're not, if you're not holding their hand behind their back and they agree to sell at a, at a price that you're able to get a big spread, I mean, I, there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, but just, again, use your... I don't know. Use your heart and your mind to be smart about it. Right. It's really where it comes down to. Absolutely. Uh, let's see. Um, so we already answered that question. What kind of marketing to do? So those are most of the questions, guys. Please feel free to ask, uh, ask questions. Fire away. Uh, so right now, what is your? You know, you're talking about you're using Reba Global. What is your monthly marketing budget? Ooh. <sighs> Right now, it's kind of high mm -hmm. <laughs> um, for me. Anyway, we're right between forty-five hundred and five grand a month that we're spending all total. So it's that's not high. <laughs> yeah, it's not too bad. I mean, that's not a, a high volume amount of direct mail, mm -hmm. honestly. And I know, yeah, there's. I've got friends who spend twenty, thirty, forty thousand a month. So yeah, you're right. But to me, I, it's a little high for me. And mm -hmm. the reason I'm going to share that <laughs> is that. Um, I got a little complacent the last couple of years. Having been around a long time, generating leads was, has been easy. Mm -hmm. um, and having people just kind of drop referrals and leads in my lap has been great, right? right? Okay, so when we set out to restart the acquisitions team at the structure that I've done before and really to kind of make the structured team, we had to come back and reassess adding a direct budget for that, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, and I will say um, part of the reason for my budget is being controlled also is that I'm obviously, have some control over my costs with Reva Global and so forth. Yeah. Um, the key with everybody though, as we look to increase our budget, which we will be over the next year, um, is just again, measuring, what, am I getting results for it? Don't just throw spaghetti against the wall and... Yeah, that goes back to the KPIs we were talking yeah. about earlier. Exactly. What is your why? My why? Outside of my, my littles, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? 
my three littles, although one's not so little, he's six three and he's <laughs> twenty years old now. But um, that my outside of my family and wanting a beautiful life for them, right? And I have a very clear vision of what that is. Um, I really have a passion for helping others rise. Um, our cl- our um, core value in our office, besides uh, us using the phrase "be powerhouse," is a phrase of what's called collective rise. And it's basically the belief that if I help you rise, I'll rise in the process, mm-hmm. right? And so it's this beautiful collaborative thing that some people are like, oh, that's you know rose-colored glasses. That doesn't really work, but it does. Absolutely does. Absolutely. And so we operate that way as a group. And to me, as I continue to look forward in my life, that's what I want to be really known for was the number of people I was able to impact in a positive way and help them rise. And that's as individuals, personally and professionally. So um, that's that's really what it is. Awesome. What is your biggest struggle right now? Biggest struggle? Honestly, it's a question that you asked earlier, which was about balance. Mm. I, I would say being just gutterly honest this year with COVID and um, all the adjustments that that put into our lives. Um, I was uh, had created a lot of momentum and a couple of things I was doing, I was very excited about. Those things came to a screeching halt. Um, my children being home, virtual learning added to our world. I'm a home, now a homeschool teacher on top of everything. All right, um, so um, I would say right now that's truly, yeah, biggest struggle is, is making those readjustments. Yeah. and. That's a struggle at our home. It's not as it's not as it's not as tough because we have more help, but man, it is definitely different. Uh, what is your superpower? <laughs> oh, my! Well, my son thinks I look like Captain Marvel. I love Wonder Woman. That's awesome. I, I know. It's just, that's, he's like, Mom, you wear leather jackets. You have blonde hair. I'm like, Okay, I'll take that. <laughs> um, it's fine. Um, my superpower. Oh, I've never ever asked me that question. Um, I don't really know. I would love to ask other people that. I think mm-hmm. it would be really fun to see what other people said ab- about me. But That's a great exercise. Um, have you ever gone through your strategic coach, unique ability, that kind of stuff? Um, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, so. so I mean, that was one of the exercises in trying to figure out your unique ability. Well, sending an email, uh, I can find, you know, send me que- uh, the uh, email or message later, I can send you the template. Okay. But like you send it to like your six closest people. I would get them to give you that feedback. And they'll give you that feedback. Mm-hmm. So. so I recently did a, not that, that particular form, but we recently sent out to our powerhouse group. Mm-hmm. So we have a, a we call the B Powerhouse Community. And um, it's a paid, paid membership coaching community and then our agents are in there and so forth. And um, we sent out a, like a feedback form, testimonial form. And I did ask them specifically about certain things. And one of them was, what do I provide you? Because mm-hmm. I was looking to see, you know, like what would, you know, what would they really say? I don't know if I got truly honest answers. I think everybody was trying to be nice, but mm. but even that was helpful. You gotta make it anonymous. Uh, <laughs> what did they say? Um, what did they say? Oh, we had a lot of positives, uh, a lot of positive responses about the quality of the value of the content that's provided by mm-hmm. what we do, and that was that made me made me happy because that's it's part of what I love. So. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, what's the greatest lesson that you have learned? Greatest lesson? Ooh, I'm still learning. Um, the greatest lesson, and you'd think this is a common sense lesson, and we would all know this, but I think we grow up to a certain point where it becomes really real. And that is that I mentioned earlier in the very beginning that I'm at cause, right? Mm-hmm. Is learning that no matter what's happening around me, I'm 100% responsible for me and I can only control what's controllable in my space, mm-hmm. right? And I think that was my number one biggest lesson was to not keep looking for other reasons that things don't work or didn't happen the way I wanted it to, and instead bring it back to me as the ultimate responsible party that made the decisions and the choices and why and where did they come from. And I know that, again, sounds like a common sense thing, but I think. Um, I don't think it's a common sense. Uh, I think it's commonly said. I think there are a lot of guys that we follow that will say that, but I don't think everyone's bought into it. And I think if everyone did buy into that, the world would be a much better place. I do, absolutely. And I think I wouldn't have made some of the mistakes I've made in my career had that been something that I was truly operating by as a core value, right? Um, Absolutely. So we went up to Flagstaff this past weekend to go watch the the leaves change colors. Something my wife's really passionate about. For me, like leaves are leaves. And my (laughs) daughter, my oldest daughter is the same way. 
And but you know we went as a family trip, so it was me, my wife, my three girls in the back seat, and then my parents and her parents. And mm. you know we took two cars. And before we left, I texted my dad the place we're going to. I never told him this is where we're going to. I just texted it to him and just you know as a visionary just assumed that he would know that's where we were going. Okay. <laughs> but I had also emailed him something the other day with a different location. So in his mind, that's where we're going. Ah. Uh. And so we're going up there, he's behind me, um, and I made a left turn, and as I was making the left, it turned yellow, so he didn't make that turn. So I called my mom, and I said, hey, we're taking 89 North, so just, I'll wait for you on the side on 89 North. I hear her repeat that to my dad, okay. 89 North. And then he proceeds to go 89 South, because that's what the GPS says. Oh no. And so we're waiting, and as we're waiting, I become more irritated, more flustered, and annoyed, and so on. I'm thinking, like, why did my dad not just listen to my mom? And as, as, I'm, up, as I'm upset, my nine-year-old in the back can hear me talking to my wife about this. And she says, well, why is that grandpa's fault? Why isn't that your fault? I was like, damn it. <laughs> because she's not wrong. If I had communicated, this is where we're going. Instead of just texting and having him figure it out, assuming he'd figure it uh -huh. out. I, I just said, that. this is where we're going. We wouldn't have this problem. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's just that lesson. Even if we have accepted it, we may often forget it. Oh, absolutely. Oh, all the time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so is there a book that you've gifted more than any other? Ooh. Um, several, but yes, I never split the difference. Probably um, in the last two years has been the one of the primaries. Absolutely. Chris Voss. It's an amazing, amazing book. Yes. Got a chance to watch him speak. Yeah. And I've bought all this stuff. And I was really surprised I was still taking a whole bunch of notes. Yeah. Really, really shocked. Yeah, so he's a personal friend. And so I get to have like actual conversations with him, right? Mm. Um, and he's just, yeah, he's really amazing. And if you if people are listening and you haven't taken his masterclass, mm -hmm. it's the number one most downloaded masterclass they've ever done. Mm -hmm. And I highly, highly suggest it. It's a very nominal investment for a ton of learning. Oh, it's priced way too low. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm gonna make a couple quick announcements. So if you want to just think about a last thought you wanna leave the listeners with. Okay. So guys, if you can, please like, comment, subscribe, share. This is what I need. It's not, I'm not being selfish here. I'm being a little selfish. But <laughs> I need you guys to do that because that's what Facebook and YouTube requires for us to grow our reach. So if you guys can please do that right now, it would help us a lot. Again, a rising tide does lift all boats. Um, and uh, if you guys uh, didn't uh, join later or joined, didn't join on time, uh, we have our classroom. It's all set up. If you guys want to check that out, anyone that buys our course will have a free ticket to an all-day event. Uh, so go to disruptors.com slash max, M-A-X. And then tune in next week. we got Eric Brewer flying in from Pennsylvania. He's going to talk about how to add an extra 10 to 20 deals a year with your existing leads. If you guys wanted to use and you know do an extra one or two deals a month, I guess uh, check that out. So very cool. Last thoughts. Last thoughts um, for everyone. I don't care what level you're at in your growth, your business scale, volume you're doing. It doesn't matter. We hear all the time the importance of our network and finding those that we can model excellence, mentors, and so forth. That's an essential piece of your growth. So if you want to move forward in any capacity, you have to go find who is doing that at the level of excellence that you want to be at so that you have something to model, right? Um, and then seek out circles that will support that. And your yeah. circles are gonna, con they're gonna change as you grow and that's okay, it's a good thing. Yeah, it's a challenge. Oh, absolutely. Outgrowing yes. your circle is all is never comfortable. No. It's good, but it kind of sucks too. It does sometimes, yes. Um, yeah. But you know what? If you're so beautifully connected, deliciously connected to your mm. want of where you want to be, then it will be a joy to find new people to bring into your circle and yeah. you won't feel it as much as the others separate. Yeah. Awesome. Very cool. So if someone wants to get a hold of you, how would they do that? A um, couple ways. Um, so first of all, if you are needing a virtual assistant, mm -hmm. first thing I want to do is that we set up a Bitly. If you know what Bitlys are, so Bitly um, is Disruptor VA. We actually set up a page for um, Steve. So it's Disruptor VA. If you want to get a VA, if you just want to know what a VA could even do for you, mm -hmm. we have a free download there of all the different tasks virtual assistants can do. You might 
just blow your own mind with the things they can do. Um, and literally, it's everything. If it can be done with a phone or a computer, it can be done by a virtual assistant. Yeah. Um, and then as far as reaching me, um, I encourage everybody to find me on Facebook or LinkedIn. I always hit my friend limit. I haven't done that public figure page thing. I probably should. Um, um, but if you send me a private message, even though I might not be able to accept your friend request, I will respond to you. Or go to bepowerhouse.com, um, and you can go there and fill out. There's a pop-up info form. Fill it out. One of our team will reach out to you to see if there's something we can do to help you. I suspect Be Powerhouse means something. It does. What does it mean? So, oh, I'll get emotional, but... Um, so my whole life, I used the phrase, be powerful or have a powerful day. I did it my whole life. And a year ago, we were kind of pushed into a situation where we needed to do a rebranding. And it was because we, the other brokerage structure, we separated and so forth. And I, I got an opportunity to make a powerful decision. Mm -hmm. And one of my friends said, I know what the name of your brokerage in your program is like I just know and she kept saying she knew and I'm like what do you mean and so finally she got me to say it to her that she goes you know why should I work with you as my coach I said because I'm a powerhouse and <laughs> she's like there it goes and I said yeah I says but that's not what I mean I don't mean like in an arrogant way I mean that it's a way of being mm -hmm. right it's it's a way of behaving in our, our life and our habits and our disciplines and our choices it's a way of, of working with others it's a commitment to growth it's a commitment to being better tomorrow than I was today and today than I was yesterday and so be powerhouse is a way of being and it sounds sort of cult-like and everybody's like oh so that sounds a little crazy but no <laughs> it really is to me and so you'll see our team they all wear shirts that say be powerhouse all the time it's a hashtag that everybody uses that's in, within our group um, is it something they're proud of to say it this is the way I'm gonna be I'm growth oriented I'm mindset oriented I'm committed to to being the best me I can be that's awesome and I always take it if someone says you sound a little cultish I think that's a compliment oh <laughs> because cult is the root word of culture yeah. Right? So it just means that you've got an amazing culture. Thank you. Well, we, we that's something we strive to continue to keep, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's that's our big commitment. So yeah, I love I love that. I'm gonna run with that one. But yeah, yeah. but awesome. be, be powerhouse. Like literally, just live your life in a powerful way. Bring power to your life. You are your power, right? Empower yourself. Empower your unconscious mind and your conscious mind to be as everything that you know you can be. Um, that's really where it comes from. That's awesome. Incredible. All right, guys, that's it. I'll see you guys next week. And thank you. That thank was you. a lot of fun. This was joy. <laughs>